Have you ever heard a fishing story? I got a fishing story for you this morning. Well, really, the Bible has a fishing story. We've probably heard that fishing story. I know Mark's heard a fish. I know Mark's told a fishing story a time or two or three. But if you know a fishing story, it's always a tall tale, right? It's, it's a story that kind of grows as the story is told over and over. The fish always gets bigger. The, the, the experience is grander. It just evolves the more that the story is told. And one of the things uh, ironic about the story is it usually involves a fisherman who's by himself. It's like this story never has a fisherman with his buddy that can sort of corroborate the story. There's, there's no one there that can verify what took place. It's just, I was by myself. I caught this fish and it was X pounds or X length. And, and then that story, if you follow it, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And here's another caveat to the story it is many times the fish is never, uh, it's never there. You lose it at the boat or something happens to it. You can never bring the fish back and say, look at this. It's eight-pound largemouth bass. No, it's, man, I caught a six, but it got off at the boat, right? It's that sort of thing. I went to school with a guy in high school like that. We fished, well, fished, we fished some together off and on. See, that's an Arkansas education. We fished together. Uh, I'm educated. We fished together off and on throughout the years in high school, and so uh, we always had good experiences. We'd go out, whether it was uh, his boat or someone else's boat or fishing off the bank. It didn't matter. We'd go out and catch a lot of fish. I don't ever remember coming back and thinking, man, we caught a monster today. Like, we caught a seven-pound largemouth, or we caught a four-and-a-half-pound smallmouth, or we killed the crappie. And I mean, we had like 13-inch, 14-inch crappie. It was never that. It's just like we caught a lot of quantities of fish. We had a good time. We had a good experience. But when this friend of mine, on most Monday mornings after he's been fishing during the weekend, it was the exact office. He would come in, we'd start talking about what we did on the weekend, and he would say, man, I was out there on the lake Saturday, and I had this six-pounder on, and I was fighting him. It was like a 10-minute fight, and he got off at the boat. I'm thinking, that's awesome. Why didn't we experience that last weekend when we were fishing? It was always that sort of thing. It was always him by himself, the fish breaks off at the boat, no matter what it was, and no one was there to corroborate the story. Well, I told you that we have a fish story this morning as we come to Luke chapter 5, but it's not that kind of fish story. It's not a tall tale type of story like we are used to hearing when it comes to these kinds of stories. In fact, as we're going to see here, the main idea in this fish story in Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 does not revolve around fishing at all. It includes fishing, it involves fishing, but it doesn't revolve around the act of fishing. Instead, it focuses on the idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is going to use this situation to teach his disciples, to teach us what it means and what it looks like to follow him. As we've seen, as we've learned, as we've been walking through the first four chapters of this gospel, Luke, the author, is writing to a man named Theophilus. He's also writing to whoever's going to read this letter, this gospel, outside of Theophilus. So he's writing to you and I, and he's wanting us to understand. He's wanting us to know uh, how we are to respond to Jesus's preaching. And so in this story, we're going to see four fishermen, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James and John, and all four of these men are going to decide to leave everything behind, and they're going to follow 
Jesus. And so what I want us to discover in these verses is that as we think about the kingdom of God and what that looks like in our own lives, the logic behind the kingdom is that we are to follow Jesus no matter what he's calling us to do because he can be trusted. So with that said, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 and let's read these first 11 verses as we talk about following Jesus. Luke says this, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke here tells us that on this particular occasion, Jesus is in Gennesaret. Gennesaret was a town uh, southwest of Capernaum. Capernaum set up on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this town, Gennesaret, was southwest of that a few miles on the edge of the Sea of Galilee as well. Luke tells us here that Jesus on this occasion is in Gennesaret. Specifically, he's on the edge or the shore of the lake of Gennesaret. So you hear that, and I don't know about you, but you may be wondering, what does all this mean? Where is this lake of Gennesaret? Well, it's the same as the Sea of Galilee. I mentioned a few times as we've been looking at this, that from the Hebrews' perspective, when they described a location, especially around the Sea of Galilee, many times it was in relation to where the event was taking place or how that event was projected onto a particular geographic spot. And so here, Jesus is teaching the people. He's in the boat of Simon and Andrew, and it's there in Gennesaret. So from their perspective, this is the lake of Gennesaret. Though if you're in Tiberias, the city of Tiberias, which would have been further south from there a few miles, you go to John 6, you go to John 21, there the lake is referred to as the Sea of Tiberias, where we also know it largely as the Sea of Galilee, the, air, the region of Galilee. This is the big lake in there. And so reading this, don't get confused in that. Just understand that the description serves primarily a geographical purpose and not a theological purpose. And so we read this and we see a lot of things are happening around this lake, around the Sea of Galilee. And as Luke has been presenting all of this, he has been presenting the preaching ministry of Jesus to us. And in fact, as we ended up chapter 4 last Sunday, we saw there that Jesus was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He's traveling around the region and he's preaching and teaching the kingdom. Apparently, he didn't just preach in the synagogues, though, because what we see here in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11 that we've read, is that Jesus is traveling, he's walking, people are following him, and he's using these opportunities 
to teach and to preach the people. Specifically here, he's on the shore of the lake, and he, the people are so crowding around him, he can't really uh, interact with them. So he sees Simon and Andrew's boat. He asks to be put out into the water, and he stands there in the boat or sets there in the boat off the shore. And, and very similar to what I would be doing right here, if I'm in a boat, you're on the shore, and you're listening to what I am teaching. They're listening to what Jesus is teaching. And so the people are listening. The people are uh, tuned into what Jesus is preaching, but so are the men who are tending their nets. If we uh, go and we, we begin to try to understand what's taking place here, how these fishermen fished, we would begin to understand and learn that if you fished back then on the Sea of Galilee, you did it largely at night. They were not casting. They were not taking lures out or, or, or live bait and, and trying to catch fish, fish with a rod and a string or on a hook. Instead, they were taking nets and they would work together. Uh, their partners in fishing, they would connect these boats together, connect the nets between the two, and they would sane the water. Now, they wouldn't do that in the deep water. They would do that in the shallow water. And so you fished at night. The fish would come up out of the deep water into the shallow water in, in the cooler temperatures when the sun's gone down. And they would feed on the bait fish. And so the fishermen would sane those shallow areas around the coastlines of the Sea of Galilee. And so these men had been out all night long, Luke tells us, and they had caught nothing. It had been a very unsuccessful night for them. I'm sure they were discouraged. I'm sure they're upset. I'm sure they're like thinking, I got bills to pay. I need fish. And that didn't happen. And so they're taking care of their tackle. They're washing the nets. They're drying them, laying them out so that they can dry, so they don't rot. All of that is taking place as Jesus is sitting in Simon and Andrew's boat, teaching the people. And then Luke tells us something else that happened. After he got done teaching, uh, Simon and Andrew are there, and Peter or Jesus says to Simon Peter, "Hey, why don't you let's get in the boat and let's go out to the to the deeper part, and I want you to let down the nets." And so that's when Peter responds. He says, "We've been out all night. We didn't catch anything. It's it's noonday. It's it's not the right time to fish. But at your word, I will let down the nets." And so all of that's happening there. All that's taking place there in this in this scene in Gennesaret. You say, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is Simon, Andrew, James, John, and all of the other fishermen are professional fishermen. Jesus, though we know him to be God, we know him to be the Messiah, we know him to be the one who's controlling everything, and so if there's anybody that really knows how to fish, it's Jesus. But from their perspective, as they're learning and getting to know Jesus, he's not a fisherman. He's a stonemason. His his upbringing uh, is stonework. That's what Joseph did. I know some of our translations say carpentry work, but if you go to Israel, uh, you travel around the countryside, you don't see houses built out of wood. You see houses and buildings built out of stone. Jesus was a stonemason. And so his professional expertise was in that. Their expertise professionally was in fishing. So here you have a guy working with rocks telling a guy who works with fish what to do. It didn't make any sense. And yet Peter listens. They go out and a great miracle takes place. They catch this big load of fish. It's breaking the nets. They call their buddies. They load the boats. Both boats are beginning to sink. I mean, all of these things are happening. It's wonderful, but it almost didn't happen because here's a stonemason telling a fisherman what to do. It didn't make logical sense. Professional fishermen know how to fish. Stonemasons don't professionally know how to fish. 
You say, why are you making such a big deal about that? Well, it's because of this. Let me give you an example. This past fall, I went with a few guys from our church over to Smith Mountain Lake. We chartered a, a guide, a fishing guide. And so we spent the whole day uh, fishing for striped bass. And so we met him there at daybreak at the dock, and, and we loaded up, and we went out, and it was freezing cold, and, and, and I don't know, conditions were great, but they were not warm because it was October. But we went out there, and, and we traveled the whole day motoring around, looking on the graph for schools of fish at a certain depth because that would have meant that they are striped bass. And every single time that we found a school of striped bass in a certain location, if we did exactly what Dakota, our guide, told us to do, you know what happened? We caught fish. And so we'd roll up into a, to a section. He, we'd see a school down there, say, 50 to 40, 40 to 50 feet deep. He would tell us to throw or uh, let our lines down with some shad down to that depth. Or some of us would have a, a jig on the side, and we'd take it down to a certain depth. And if we did everything he said, we caught fish. If we did what we wanted to do, guess what happened? We didn't catch any fish. I didn't have an opportunity to do the jig thing, but it was so light. And so if you did exactly what he did, you'd catch the fish. If you did what you thought you should do because you've caught other species of fish, you didn't even feel it, much less set the hook on that. So he's the professional. He knows how to catch fish because if he doesn't know how to catch fish, what do you think is going to happen to his business? goes under, right? He doesn't have anybody coming, which means he doesn't have any money, which means he doesn't have this really, really nice boat with incredible electronics. I was impressed. I mean, I'm a fisherman. I love those things. I'm like salivating at the mouth thinking these electronics are amazing. I mean, I could stick anything down there and I could see exactly what was going on. It was awesome. But if you're not a professional who knows what you're doing, it's all for nothing. That's the situation here with Peter, Simon Peter and his and his buddies. They're the they're the, they're the experts. There's the they're the professional and yet Jesus here speaks into this situation. They listen to him. A miracle takes place and in all of this we learn not about fishing, we learn about following Jesus, about what it means to be a disciple. So as Christians, that's what I want us to to see this morning. I want us to see how we can, how we should follow Jesus in our lives. As Christians, think about this. We abide in and we share his kingdom with others. That's one of the things we're going to see here. We're going to see how he understands Jesus is master. He has authority. He can do miracles, but he's also Lord of our lives. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? There's four things that are, that are involved that I want to point out to you from this passage this morning. Here's the first thing. Following Jesus involves a humble heart. It involves a humble heart. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw this amazing catch of fish, when he saw the nets breaking, when he saw the fish causing the boats to sink, Luke tells us that he fell at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to think that Simon really didn't believe or expect, maybe is a better word, to catch much, right? Simon's there listening to Jesus teach. He's listening to this. Here's what we also know about Simon and Andrew. They already have met Jesus, right? Capernaum, they've met Jesus. Jesus came to Simon's house. He healed his mother-in-law. He was there in Simon's home as the people from the community were being healed of diseases. Demons were being cast out. That's why Simon here, I think, is, is cognitively aware of the fact that Jesus can do something. He just doesn't really expect that, right? It'd be like some of you coming to me and be like, Pastor, I want you to take me fishing. You probably wouldn't expect to catch a lot of fish. You're just going to have a good time. 
maybe fall out of the boat. I, I don't know what you would expect there, but it's probably not going to catch a lot of fish. And so that's really where, where Simon is on, in all of this. Now, I'm not saying he's completely discounting Jesus and his words, because he didn't. Verse 5 tells us he rose out and he sets down the nets. But he didn't expect to see such a catch. Now, why wouldn't he expect to see such a catch? Because he hadn't even heard the tall tale story, the fishing story that would have even come close to this kind of catch. And no one had even told a story this grand. And, and our stories always grow and, you know, over and over and over again. They get bigger. No one had even told this story. So he never expected to go out there, let down the nets, and have such a catch that he can't drag it in. And once they finally got it in the boat, the boats were beginning to take on water. So Simon here was moved by Jesus, but he's not moved by the fish. That's the key in this. See, I told you the story is not about fish. The story is about learning to follow Jesus. Simon's heart is moved by the Lord, not the catch of the fish. Jesus uses the catch to move his heart and the hearts of the other men to a place of humility so that Simon would look at Jesus and say, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to share this boat with you. Lord, go away from me. Now, it's not that Jesus or that Simon wanted Jesus to go away. No, he didn't want him to go away. It's that he understood his humility had come in. He understood he didn't deserve to be in the presence of Almighty God. Simon here began to have a proper perspective of the Lord. He saw his sinfulness contrasted against the backdrop of the holiness of Jesus Christ. And when we come to that place in our life, think about it. When you came to know Jesus Christ, this was a similar experience for you. Your sinfulness was contrasted against the backdrop of the holiness of God. And you understood like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people who are wicked and unclean. That, that was the sentiment of Isaiah. That's the sentiment of Simon here. Depart from me. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be in your presence. There's a humbleness. There's a humble heart here in the life of Simon Peter. We see the same thing in Job, in Job 42, when he experiences the Lord. You know, you know the story there. He's been arguing with the Lord. He's been uh, uh, contending that he's righteous, that he didn't deserve all that he has experienced. And he comes to the end of that, and he really catches a full vision of the holiness and the grandeur of God. And he repents in dust and ashes. You think of John the Apostle when he experiences Jesus there in Revelation. It, the Bible tells us that he fell down as if he were dead. There's a moral agony that takes place in our lives when we experience Jesus like this. I like how Arkent Hughes uh, it, it kind of magnifies this experience. And he says, this experience in response to Jesus is a great grace he says, because moral agony, that inner writhing over one's sin, is a necessary prelude to the grace of forgiveness. You see, we experience the forgiveness of God when we come into relationship with Jesus. And you only come into relationship with Jesus when you understand his holiness, your sinfulness, but you find forgiveness in him for your sinfulness. Now, that's a mouthful what I just said, but hopefully it makes sense. Did you say Amen. Thank you. Following Jesus requires humility. It demands the bowing of our knees and surrender and submission to him. Think about this. It necessitates an awareness of our sin and the condemnation we are under before holy God. This awareness doesn't drive the Lord 
away from us. No, it drives the Lord to us. Really, put it the other way. It drives us to the Lord. We understand that alone we stand condemned before God. We understand that we're powerless to do anything to better our predicament. But in Jesus, we stand forgiven and redeemed. And so we run to him in humility. We come before him, understanding how uh, despicable our sin is before God. But he welcomes us and calls us to himself. And so really, the way we should understand Simon's statement here in verse 8 is not, Lord, you don't need don't lord get away from me you don't need to be around me really what simon is saying lord is this lord be merciful to me a sinner there's a humble heart that's involved in following jesus hey you'll never walk with the lord close and clean if you're prideful and arrogant it requires humility second thing it involves a confident trust verse 5 jesus says, go out to the deep, set down your nets. And, and, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night. Master, we took nothing. We fished all night. We were out there. We, we've, we're spent. We, we've done that. But at your word, I will go and I'll let down the nets. That's interesting. At your word. I didn't say this in the first service. I thought about it when I was, we were singing earlier. Uh, if you're reading through the Bible with this this year, uh, we're in Joshua. And so in yesterday's reading, Joshua chapter 7 specifically, uh, Israel has come into the promised land. They've crossed over the, Jer- or the uh, Jordan River. They're coming up to Jericho. If you remember in chapter 6, I believe, they march around the city seven times. One time each day for seven days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times. They blow the trumpets. They shout. The walls fly down. They go in and they conquer the city. It's a miraculous story. They were also told in that that you're to devote everything to destruction. Nothing is to be taken, right? Chapter 7, you've got this smaller group of people, this town of Ai, and Israel goes up to fight them after they've beat the giants, right? The thick walls, high walls, impenetrable. They go to this smaller town, should be no big deal whatsoever, and they are, the Bible tells us, they're routed before the people of Ai. Why was that? Well, we read on in chapter 7 that there's a man in Israel uh, of the tribe of Judah named Achan. And the reason the people of God were routed before this, this smaller group, this wicked but smaller group of people, was because Achan had sin in his camp, sin in his life. He had taken, he had taken a cloak from Shinar. He had taken 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar. Now, those things, I don't know about the cloak, but if you walked in and you saw 200 shekels of silver laying there and a gold bar, it'd be kind of hard not to put that in your pocket and walk away, right? Plunder goes to the victors. But God says, no, it's all to be devoted to destruction. He takes that. And, and so God says, after they're defeated, Joshua's kind of uh, pouting. And he's like, why were we defeating? And, and, and God is like, get up, get up. I love how God does that. This is off the sermon here, but get up off your feet. Uh, the reason is because they're sinning your camp, deal with the sin, so they do all these things, they figure out who did it. Here's the question, here's the thought that comes to my mind. Why didn't Achan, number one, not take what was told not, he was told not to take? And number two, why didn't he think that God would figure it out? You ever thought about that? He didn't believe the word. He didn't. He thought that somehow and in some way he could get around the all-seeing eyes of holy God. He didn't have a confident trust in God's sovereignty, ultimately. And it led to his destruction. 
We won't go on to the rest of what was done to him, but God brought judgment upon his house. Do we believe God's word? Achan didn't believe God's word. Simon here, I believe, had a confident trust in God. First of all, Luke tells us that he uses this title of master. Luke's the only one who uses this, ter- this term, this title in the Gospels. He uses it multiple times. Uh, he, on the flip side, Luke never uses the, the, the title rabbi, which the other gospel writers use. He, he uses a lot of times master, or he'll speak of Jesus as being Lord and Savior. Uh, so Simon here understood Jesus to be the master, to have authority. And so w- looking at Simon's response, we don't want to see in this a disobedience. He just might not have expected a whole lot because he's the professional. Jesus is not the professional fisherman. So we, what we want to see is how Simon agreed to do something that at face value might have appeared foolish. Through this event, Simon learned the importance of confidently trusting Jesus despite how ridiculous things might appear. I hope I've painted that picture well enough for you that here's the professional listening to the non-professional give him instructions about how he should do his profession it didn't make logical sense on paper you would never build a business plan listen to the stonemason he knows how to fish y'all with me you would listen to the guy who's a professional fisherman if you're going to build a business plan on that right and so it did make sense and yet simon listens and he obeys You see, following Jesus, when we think about it for ourselves, does not always make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense to listen to the fishing report by Jesus, and yet that's what he did. And so for us, on paper, it may not make sense for, for us to do a lot of things. It doesn't make sense for these four men to leave everything, business and family, to follow Jesus. But that's what verse 11 tells us they did. Why? Because they confidently trusted Jesus with their lives. So for us, think about this. It may not sound logical, even from a salvation standpoint. It may not sound logical to find forgiveness through confession, repentance, and faith. For us, logically, we would find forgiveness through, I'm going to try better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more religious. I'm going to be more active. I'm going to do more things. I'm going to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. I'm going to make myself better. That's what makes sense in our human understanding. But from the biblical gospel perspective, the thing that makes most sense is to lay yourself down in humility before the Lord Jesus and trust in what he has done for you. That's the most logical thing. It also may not make logical sense for us as Christians, think about this, to give uh, 10% of our gross income back to the Lord through the local church. Your accountant probably may look, might look at that and think that's the most unwise thing you could do, especially in the, in the season we're in where everything is skyrocketing in price. And yet as we look at it through God's perspective, in God's economy, it's the only thing that makes sense. It may not make sense to walk away from a promising career, to go into vocational ministry, or become a missionary, and yet that may be the most logical thing to do biblically and spiritually. It may not seem logical to use your vacation time to go on uh, on a mission trip, to take the gospel to peoples around the world, to invest time and energy in others, but that's what God's calling many of us to do. And so when we begin to sense that call, the question is, will we believe God, trust God, or will we think in our own logic, in our own minds, what's best, and go and do that. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require a humble heart. It's going to require a confident trust. Thirdly, it's going to involve an awareness of mission. 
Latter part of verse 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I want you to see the beautiful encounter, this beautiful picture, this beautiful encounter, this aspect that's going on here. Think about it. The holy presence of Jesus not only confronts Simon about his sinfulness, but it invites him into his mission. Jesus is saying here, I mean, he's, Simon experiences Jesus, which personifies, or and that's not the right word, it, 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 it um, conveys or reveals his own sinfulness, right? His sinfulness is contrasted against the holiness of God. And so Simon is like, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be in your presence. And yet in all of this, Simon is right. He doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. But Jesus is not the one saying that. Jesus, in fact, says the opposite of that. He's basically saying, join me in this. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's how Mark records it in his gospel. Luke says that from now on you will be catching men. What does it mean to catch a man? Well, what do you do when you fish? Catch fish, right? What do you catch fish for? Do you catch them alive to keep alive, or do you catch them alive to kill them, eat them, right? You don't eat a fish and it's still alive. That's not possible. So it's the opposite of that. So we're, God's not sending us out as his army to go and destroy people. No, he's sending us out as his army to catch men alive, to bring them into the relationship and to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is inviting Simon Peter and, and the others into this mission. He's making him aware of this mission that he's called them to do. It's the same mission that Jesus has. Remember what what Jesus said to the people of Capernaum when, he, when they wanted to restrain him and keep them there in, the, in their town. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Why? For I was sent for this purpose. Now Jesus is saying, it's not just my mission, it's our mission. Uh, I, I told you last week that this is what he does. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That's what he says in, in, in the Gospel of John. Now he's commissioning Simon and Andrew and James and John on this mission. It's just as last week I said that this commission, this mission that we've been commissioned to be a part of, it's not for the professional. It's for every believer who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Every member is a minister. Every Christian is a minister. The gospel is not something that is re, 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 uh, reserved only for those who are in vocational ministry such as I. This is my job. This is what I do seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is my profession. It's also my faith. But the gospel is not just for me. It's not for our elders. It's not just for our staff. It's not just for our deacons or small group leaders. Every person who's a part of Red Lane Baptist Church, for that matter, every person who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a part of the mission. Amen. We're called to be a part of the mission. Where we live, where we work, where we play. I made a big point of that last Sunday. Why? Because I'm convinced the gospel travels the bridge of relationships best. If we're going to reach people with the gospel, it's not going out and doing a crusade event in our community, though that would be wonderful. It's not me coming to your office there and standing up and preaching like this, though, hey, I'll do it. But it's you and I in our relationships, in the circles of influence, living the gospel, sharing the gospel, expressing the gospel, calling people to respond to the gospel. That's how the Lord wants us to do that. And so he's sending Simon and these others on this mission. Are we aware of the mission in our own lives? I'm convinced that if you're not, 
aware of it, if you're not stepping into this awareness, then maybe you're not following Jesus as closely as you think you are. Sometimes we think, man, I'm really walking with God. I mean, I love God. I'm, I'm pursuing God. I'm in Bible studies. I'm in church. I'm in small group. I'm doing all these things. But yet we ne- neglect one of the most important things God's called us to do, and that's evangelism. So if we're not engaged in the mission where we live, work, and play, then we're probably not walking with Jesus as closely as we think we are. Number four, following Jesus involves a reckless abandonment. Latter part of verse 11, this passage ends with Luke telling us, telling us that the four men left everything and followed him. As you read that, you think about what was taking place here. What do you mean, left everything? Well, these are professional fishermen, right? So they owned a boat or boats. They might have had employees, not sure. It probably was definitely a family business. Simon and his brother Andrew were involved, probably their dads, because we know that James and John left their stuff with their father. uh, His name is Zebedee. So it's a family business, might have had workers, definitely has, uh, this had an economical impact on their family. There's all kinds of things that are involved here. And Luke tells us they left all of that and followed Jesus. We might read this and think, wow, what a waste. Why would they do this? I bet some of their families and friends were struggling to understand it as well. Didn't make sense to them. Might not have made sense to them, might not have made sense to us, but it was the best and most sensible thing they could do in response to Jesus' calling on their lives. See, it's not about how we look at it from a worldly perspective. It's how we see it through the eyes of the gospel and the Spirit's calling upon our lives. These men were willing to lay everything down and go with Jesus. Is that not what it means to follow Jesus? Is that not what it means to be a disciple, which means you're a follower of Jesus, to lay everything down and follow him? It doesn't mean all of us lay everything down. Now think about it. When you came to know Jesus, he didn't call, more than likely, he didn't all of a sudden call you into a new profession. He didn't all of a sudden call you to a new state, a new country. He didn't call you to get up and go live with another family. He might do that, but that's not typically what he does. But we as Christians have to be willing to say, if that's what he calls, I'll do it. If he calls me into a new profession, I'll do it. If he calls me to a a new thing, a new place, whatever, I will do it. My yes is on the table. But discipleship is costly. Sometimes the price is too hard for people to pay it. John 6 tells us that Jesus was teaching some hard things and some of his followers walked away. Jesus looked at his disciples, the 12, and he says, do you want to go as well? And Peter says, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So discipleship, we need to understand, is costly, and we have to be willing to pay the price. These men exercise this reckless abandonment, not reckless in the sense that they didn't care about who they heart, but reckless in the sense that they were willing to leave everything for the sake of following Jesus. So for us, let me just paint some scenarios. Are we willing to, to go serve on a short-term mission trip overseas if the Lord so called us to do? I can't tell you how many times over the years, I've been in ministry 20 plus years, and I can't tell you how many times uh, well-meaning, Christian, good-going, good church-going people would say, ah, you know, mission trip's not stuff for me. That, that mission trip stuff's not for me. 
I don't like airplane rides. Uh, I, I, you know, doesn't even have to be overseas. It's somewhere in the, in the country here. They, they just make excuses up. I, I don't do well over in different cultures, food issues, or whatever. Now we would make the excuse of, well, I don't want to get a vaccine. I want to wear a mask. You know, we come up with all those things. Here's what I've said from the very beginning two years ago of COVID, and this is the weekend, two-year anniversary of COVID, right? Two weeks, two years ago this weekend is when everything shut down. That's when I got angry two years, two years ago. I'm, I'm over it. I've gotten better. But I said from the very beginning that if it takes a vaccine, if it takes mask wearing, if it takes any of those things to be on the mission field, I'll do it. I'll do it. Why? My yes is on the table because those things are more important. I may fuss about all those other things, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be on mission for the Lord, locally and globally. And as a Christian, we need to be that way as well. But what if the Lord just simply called you to start a Bible study in your office or start a Bible study in your neighborhood? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to get out of your comfort zone and, and get that going to invest spiritually in the lives of others? If he began to call you into vocational ministry where you'd have to leave your current career, or maybe you're a young person and you would have to kind of reorient your future and how you kind of plan things out, would you be willing to go and serve the Lord in full-time ministry? If he called you to give more or sell something that's a, 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 a real important thing in your life and family and give that to missions or give that to the local church or for, for ministry, would you be willing to recklessly abandon it for the sake of the kingdom? A couple years ago in the summer, uh, 2016, maybe 2017, I did a series on stewardship and I I think I called the series just living with palms up. I'd have to go back and look at it. But I know I kept making that statement. But I think that's how we should live our lives as Christians. Palms up. Here's how we want to live our life. It's mine. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to grip, death grip. You, you can't pry it out of my hands. My, my girls, um, a lot of times, uh, you know how us dads do. We mess around with our kids and they try to get something out of my hand. And, you know, they can't. There's no way they can get something out of my hand unless they bite or pinch or cheat. And then I may relent, but then I cheat as well. And so we like to play that game, but that's what we want to do with life. We want to kind of hold on to things like we own them, and God all the time is trying to open our hand and get it out of there because unless it's in his hands, it's not useful. But this is how we want to live our life when we should be living like this, understanding that I'm simply a steward, a manager of what God owns. I teach this to my girls all the time as well. I don't know if they're getting it. They'll come up and they're like, they'll, they'll make a statement like, this is my room or this is my bed or this is my whatever. And I remind them, you don't own anything in this house. I own that bed. I own, you, you're paying the mortgage on this house? No, 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 no. It's my room. You want to paint that room? You come ask me, right? That's that sort of thing. Or really, you ask mom. She's the boss. She's the neck that turns the head, right? Marriage conference is coming. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we got to live with palms up, understand that Jesus owns it all. Uh, everything I have, it's his, even my own life. I believe this perspective on life may not make worldly sense, but it makes perfect biblical sense, perfect kingdom sense. God can be trusted, and that's how we want to live our lives. So this story here, it's, it's not your typical fishing story. It's not a tall tale. It's a beautiful story of what God wants to do in a person's life, how he wants to use a sinner's life. Did you notice as we read through this, 
as we kind of talk through it, that the holy runs to the sinful. Holy God pursues the sinful man. Peter understands he's a sinner, right? Depart from me, oh, oh Lord. Depart from me, uh, oh Lord, I'm a sinful man, right? That's what he says. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't depart, he pursues. Did you notice that when the sinner sees his sin, rather than sending him away, Jesus invites him to come closer. Jesus continues to pursue. He's inviting him in. He's basically saying, join me in this. Do you see in this fishing story, a holiness that uses a confessing sinner in its mission? That doesn't make any sense. That's why when we talk about the kingdom of God being upside down, why would you use a very sinful man to do a holy work? It's because God's in the business of transforming lives. We're all a messed up bunch of people, right? You, you guys are all broken. I'm broken. We're all messed up. We all have baggage, and we open a closet, and the skeletons fall out, right? That's who we are. We need to open that closet and allow those things to come out, bring them into the light, let God redeem that stuff. But that's who the Lord uses. He uses broken people in his mission. We see here that this holiness calls and commissions the sinner to become a fisher of men. He doesn't send the professional in. He sends the redeemed person in, the person who's kind of struggling through this. Peter didn't have it all figured out. How do you know? We, how do we know that? It's because we get to the crucifixion part of everything, and, and Peter is kind of reverting to his old life. The guy comes to, well, first of all, he, he pledges a whole lot. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. If everyone else leaves, I'm standing with you, Jesus. And the people come, and Peter cuts a guy's ear off, right? And then after that, he's denying, I don't even know this guy. Uh, three times, he's cussing like a sailor. I don't know if I should say that, I guess, maybe offend a sailor or two. But he's cussing, he's cutting people's ears off. You, you get on the backside of that, Jesus is crucified. They're trying to figure everything out. He, rumors of, of Jesus being resurrected, and Peter find, finds himself back on the sea, fishing again. He's went back to his old way of life. And there's the beautiful picture, Jesus standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, cooking some fish, and he says, Peter, hey, why don't you come over here? Why don't you have some breakfast? Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? <laughs> you know I do, Lord. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I love you, Lord. Take care of my sheep. Three times he asked him the question, why? I believe it's in response to the three times he denied him. What's Jesus doing in all this? Restoring him. Showing his love. Bringing him in to the family. God pursues us in our sin, and then he sends us out as redeemed sinners to take the gospel to those who need to hear it too. This morning, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, are you following him? Or are you walking at a guilty distance? Are you following him? Do you, are you humble in, in your walk with him? Are you trusting in your walk with him? Are you aware of the mission he's called you to as you walk with him? Are, are, are you living with this abandonment that my yes is on the table? It doesn't matter what the assignment, it's yes. That's what it means to follow Jesus. How's your life, Christian? If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, and I'm not naive enough to think that everyone sitting here or who will listen to this online in the future is, is a Christian. I, I, but I don't know who is and who isn't. That's not my job. But if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, I hope you sense and hear the love and the grace and the mercy of the God who's calling you to himself. Here's Peter. 
a sinful person just like you and I. And God pursues him and pursues him and pursues him. Was, was Peter a believer in Capernaum? I don't know. This could have been the moment when he actually came to faith in Jesus Christ. But I do, I do know at some point Jesus is pursuing this sinful man and he radically changes his life. And he's doing that for the rest of his life. He's this ongoing project and you are as well. This morning, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, there's not a greater decision you can make in your life than to say yes to Jesus Christ. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this word that we have looked at and ask the Lord to, to really speak to our hearts, open our hearts to what he would have us to do this morning as we want to follow him. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture. Thank you for this fishing story, so unlike most fishing stories that we hear. God, this is a story that's true. This is a story that's full of grace. This is a story that's full of life. It's full of, of mercy and goodness. It's full of miracles. And Lord, when we think about what it means to be spiritually dead and separated from God, the only thing we need in our life is a miracle. And the miracle comes through the power of the gospel as we see Jesus for who he is. We see the, that he is the son of God, the sinless son of God, the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. His blood was shed. He was crucified and buried. And he was resurrected so that we could have victory, so that we could have freedom, so that we could have eternal life in Jesus Christ. God, in this room, there may be some who have never experienced that for themselves. And Lord, this morning, you are calling, maybe for the first time, but perhaps, Lord, you've been calling and speaking the gospel of their life for some time now. And today's the day they need to respond to that. Lord, I pray you would give them faith and boldness to take that next step. Lord, the vast majority of us in this room are believers. We've experienced the saving power of Jesus in our life. But the Christian walk is not easy. and Many times we get off the path. Sometimes we're really off the path. Other times we're just kind of hanging out on the shoulder of the road. But either way, we're not walking with you. And God, I pray this, this morning that, that we would have that heart, that humble heart that, that just loves you, that just wants to sit at your feet, that just wants to abide in you. I pray that, God, we would have a confident trust in your goodness and your sovereignty and your love for us. Confident trust that you're walking with us. It doesn't matter how good or how bad life is. You're right there beside us. Lord, I pray that we would have an awareness of the mission you've called us into. You've said, go and make disciples. That's not to the vocational people, it's to everyone. And Lord, many times we just need to look around in our families, among our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our circles that we run in. We see lost people everywhere who, I mean, they just need Jesus. And we're the light sent to be a missionary. Father, I pray that we would also see that in all of this, it, it requires a reckless abandonment. The yes is on the table. We're willing to, to leave everything. We're living with palms up because we don't own anything. It's, it's the Lord's. And so we want to just follow the Lord wherever he's leading. Give what we're commanded to give. Go where we're commanded to go. Do what we're commanded to do. Love who we're commanded to love. 
Lord, as we move into this response time, as we sing a song, I pray that our hearts are open, they're pliable, they're sensitive, and they're ready to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.